right. We uh, press on. We uh, the end is the end is draweth nigh. Um, we have for quite some time. I've lost track. What? Where are we? Sixty-eight. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not sure we'll make seventy. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, we'll we'll pull in just south of uh, of seventy. We have been. Uh, Studying church history, we started at the beginning and uh, only going so far. Um, maybe you'll want to press on from there. There's lots more interesting stuff. I just never taught it, so uh, that's why we don't. We only go so far is what I've already taught in the past. And uh, so we, uh, I don't have any more stories from Munster to add. Sorry, we're we're pretty. You should be. Uh, experts on Munster now. Um, um, well, I'm, I'm just simply saying this, parti- this particular week you may have opportunities of telling some of those stories because they'd fall into the scary story part. Uh, there was once a guy named uh, Jan of Leiden. <laughs> See the little kids screaming. Um, yeah, be very careful how you use that information. Uh, but. Uh, not we're not in the scary part. Well, we're in the scary part for some people. I'll, I'll be honest with you because uh, we started uh, looking at the life of, of John Calvin last week, and that's what we're going to be finishing up with. We've already done Luther, and we've done. Um, we didn't really do Melanchthon. We talked a little bit about Melanchthon uh, a bit, but uh, we've done Luther and and stuff like that. So we'll we'll be finishing up uh, with uh, with Calvin, which then of course leads to things after that. Maybe we'll do one. Maybe we'll just make it 70 even or something like that. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll think about it. But anyway, so last, uh, last week, you remember that we had gotten into how in the world Calvin ended up in Geneva. He did not want to be in Geneva. Uh, he had written a, a book called The Institutes of Christian Religion, uh, the initial volume of which was not nearly as long as the current uh, multi-volume work that you may be familiar with today. Uh, there is a publication of that, by the way, if you're interested in seeing what the uh, initial uh, publication uh, looked like. But um, uh, that was written when he was an infant in Christ, shall we say. And yet it, uh, it, it may have changed in depth, but not so much in outline in, in years uh, that, that came after that. Anyway, that he had, uh, because of war, uh, been uh, shuttled off through Geneva. You remember his encounter with uh, Pharrell and uh, his staying there uh, less than two years uh, there in uh, Geneva, at which point he and Pharrell are basically invited to leave. And um, uh, basically, it's because they were attempting to um, bring, uh, again, this is a sacral system, this is a, a church-state system, and trying to bring a godly way of life to an otherwise primarily ungodly city um, just simply didn't work. It's not like they were coming up with all sorts of new rules. Uh, they were just uh, enforcing the rules that already existed in regards to public morality and things like that. And the people did not like it. Um, Calvin obviously had this much experience, pastorally speaking, uh, at, at the start. I mean, like I said, he wanted to go to Strasbourg and be a, be a scholar. 
And so uh, to, to, to say that that first period of public ministry was less than successful uh, would not be an understatement by any stretch of the imagination. That's something to keep, uh, to keep in mind. You can write super books, but still have issues along those lines. And uh, so after they are uh, dismissed from uh, Geneva, uh, Calvin's like, okay, um, there's no war in the way now. I'm getting to Strasbourg. Uh, delayed by 18 months or so, but I'm getting to, uh, to Strasbourg. And um, Strasbourg, of course, is under the influence of Martin Bootser. We've talked about Bootser before. He was, uh, uh, seems to have been a, a rather uh, peace-loving man. Uh, he, he sought to uh, you know, keep the Reformation going, um, but that wasn't easy to do. Uh, you remember what happened at the Marburg Colloquy and Luther and Zwingli, and, and you know, one side was trying to sort of hold things together. The other side wasn't all that concerned about such things. And um, so Bootser sort of takes Calvin under his, uh, under his wing, and Calvin is, becomes a pastor of the French flock there in Strasbourg. And this is a, a much less difficult task in the sense that, in a, in, in, in a sense, this ch- congregation wants to be a congregation. That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the things that was so difficult for Calvin and for anyone involved in ministry in a sacral system where you have a state church. Um, how do you deal with a congregation that is made up of people that are sort of forced to go to church? Um, you know, they're not there of, of their own choice. Um, you know, that's, that's troubling. Uh, that's, that's difficult. Well, these were sort of refugees from war and things like that. And they were there because they wanted to be there. And it made a huge difference. Um, there was desire for the word of God. There was a desire for the ministry of the word and things like that. And so, uh, Calvin now takes to this and, and finds this to be, um, something that is, uh, much more uh, amenable to him. Uh, he does get to do some of his scholarship. But he's not living in an ivory tower because during this time in Strasbourg, the plague uh, comes into the city. And ever since, you know, we, we talked, did a whole lesson on the plague. Uh, that was a real uplifting uh, lesson. Um, but it was a, a tremendously, um, you know, it was called the Great Mortality. They did not call it the Black Death back then. And called the Great Mortality, and um, I mentioned then that uh, the numbers in modern studies have gone up from when I was in school uh, to where in, in many places, many cities, as, as much as three-quarters of the population was wiped out, uh, most of the estimates have gone up to close to 50% uh, around, around many of those areas. And, um, but it didn't, it didn't just disappear. Um, it, it would... It would stop in an area, uh, but then it could come back. It's not like you could build up an immunity to it or something like that. And so what would generally happen when the plague would come into a city, um, if you had the means to get out of the city, by now, you know, this is 200 years after the first initial real 
uh, influx of what we would call bubonic plague. Um, there are other things. I mean, smallpox and things like that were called plague as well. And sometimes we're not sure which was which. Especially the farther back you get, there were there were periods of time, for example, in North Africa back in the third, uh, fourth, fifth centuries, where plagues would come through. What kind of a plague was it? Well, some just simply from descriptions, it's sort of hard to necessarily tell. But especially in Europe now, 200 years had passed, and people had figured out the best way to survive when the plague hits is to get out of built-up urban areas and get as far away from other people as possible. And so if you had the money and the capacity to do so, um, you got out of town, and uh, maybe you might have a summer home out in the hills or something like that. And um, if you were one of the rich people, that's what you would do. And very often, what we would call loosely the medical people would do the same thing. Um, they they knew this better than others, and so they're you know they're they're gone. And uh, we know doctors. <coughs> he says as he looks back toward one in the back. Um, they, uh, they 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 got out of town. So, uh, what what would ministers do? Um, well, faithful ministers generally uh, risk themselves in ministering to the people of their of their flock, and this is what uh, Calvin did as well. And so uh, he certainly uh, increased the uh, esteem that he had in the eyes of his people uh, due to the fact that he fearlessly uh, ministered to the sick and, and stayed there in the city and uh, during the plague and uh, uh, continued his, his work at that particular point in time. And so there, there seems, it, it would seem, you know, we could speculate that the young scholar who showed up in Geneva and had to be feralized uh, to stay there is growing and maturing. I mean, he's still very young, uh, but he's growing and maturing, and this is a, a specific time uh, of, of growth for him. But like I said, he's not just sitting around uh, idly. Uh, there is some very important stuff that happens while he is in Strasbourg, and one that I would uh, recommend to your reading if you are interested in such things. While um, once Calvin and Pharrell have left Geneva, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Geneva, uh, Sadaletto, uh, is seeking to bring Geneva back into uh, the Roman Catholic fold. And very quickly, the people of Geneva recognize, oh, we don't really have anybody that can respond to this. We kicked them all out. <laughs> uh, we got rid of the ministers, and uh, the ministers that are left really aren't up to responding to a erudite uh, bishop such as Sadaletto and his, uh, his arguments and so, somewhat sheepishly, uh, a letter arrives from Geneva, and it's like, you know, you know uh, we, we know we sort of parted on, on bad ways, and we sort of like kicked you out and stuff, but um, 
Would you take a look at the letter that the Roman Catholic Bishop Sadaletto has addressed to, to our church? And might you find it in your heart to maybe help us out here? And uh, Calvin does. And uh, I remember years and years ago, uh, 19, oh, wow, when was this? Maybe the very early 90s. Uh, there was a well-known church historian by the name of Heiko Obermann who taught down at the U of A. And um, I think he just wanted to get out of European weather, and so <laughs> why else would you end up in Tucson? Uh, but um, uh, he, there, there was a s- serious program of church history study down there. And so I was... I graduated from Fuller, and so I was seriously considering it uh, as, as a possibility down there. And so I remember going down, and um, uh, one evening there was a uh, doctoral seminar at Dr. Obermann's house in pretty much northern Tucson. And the, it was very enjo- enjoyable to, uh, to attend. And the whole discussion was on this letter, the letter that... Uh, Calvin wrote in response to Sadaletto in defense of the Reformation for the people at Geneva. And it's not super long, and that's why, you know, uh, it may be as well known as it is, but it is a classic uh, defense of the Reformation over against a very erudite uh, Roman Catholic prelate. And so it's, it's good stuff. And so it's S-A-D-O-L-E-T-O, if you want to look it up, Sadaletto. And um, uh, it's very, very interesting reading to read uh, Calvin's response to Sadaletto and his taking on the various issues and claims of authority and things like that. So if you're really interested, especially in Reformation apologetics, this is one of the earliest. Well, it's certainly, well, aside from the Institutes, it's, it's certainly an insight into how Calvin defended the Reformation at this particular point in time. Then, at the same time, you would think, you know, he wasn't in Strasbourg all that, all that long. Um, he's going to return to Geneva on September 13th, 1541. So, just a couple years there in Strasbourg, and yet, somehow, he manages to write his commentary on Romans. <laughs> Now, most people who write a commentary on Romans spend many, many years um, in, that, in that task. It is a uh, testimony to not only his clarity of thought and ability as an author. I mean, if you've seen his commentary on the Bible, the many, 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 many volumes of commentary on the Bible, uh, you know that this is not surface-level stuff. And... I've always felt, you know, I, I sit there looking at my super high-speed MacBook Pro with two terabyte SSD drive and all my fancy word processing stuff that I can, you know, just pull stuff in and, you know, quotes and stuff like that and, you know, searching huge electronic libraries and everything like that. And then you look at what these guys produced with... Candlelight and quill pens. 
And it makes almost all of us modern folks look like morons. Uh, okay? It really does. Um, the level of discipline, um, physical discipline, just sitting for that long, um, no air conditioning, no uh, lights, LASIK, rudimentary reading glasses at best, um, fleas and mosquitoes. Um, you, 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 I'm sorry? Well, yeah, well, yeah, that Erasmus did believe that the mosquitoes were demons, but, um, yeah, um, and yet, it, it just seems quite obvious to me that the men of this age had discipline we know nothing about, and an attention span 50 times longer than anything we've got. It is so easy to be distracted. There's so many things that distract us. And <clears throat> partly because, you know, we, we almost know everything that Calvin possessed physically. And in, in, in comparison to anybody today, he was a pauper. He had nothing. But when you have almost nothing, you're distracted by almost nothing. And... Hence, we look back, and it's like, why, does, why don't any of us produce this type of work? And the only explanation I can come up with is because we tend to be extremely distracted by a million things. Now, of course, same way, you know, we're flooded with just this tsunami of information about what's going on in the world instantly. And they didn't have that. You know, a war could be three months in, in progress before word would even get some areas, so you wouldn't even, wouldn't even know. Yet, there's an entire set of books that are Calvin's correspondence. And so he, it wasn't that he was hiding someplace and didn't care. Um, he actually uh, spent a tremendous amount of time trying to mediate disputes, and uh, he wrote a tremendous amount of epistolary literature, letters to people. Um, long periods of time invested in that. So, writes his commentary on Romans while he is there. Uh, anytime you preach through Romans, work through Romans, that's going to tremendously solidify your soteriology, make you, it's going to force you to think through. There's lots of tough material there to have to think through, and where am I going to come down on this? And, and uh, uh, Calvin wasn't just sitting there going, well, I'm the expert on all this. You read his materials, and he's reading commentators. He's reading the early church fathers. He, he knows where they are coming from, and he's drawing from them, and yet so preeminently biblical in his exegesis as well. It's, it's amazing. In 1540, he marries Idolette de Bure. Idolette de Bure. How do you spell that? Uh, which one? Both. I-D-E-L-E-T-T-E. Debure, D-E, capital B-U-R-E. Idolette Debure, she was the uh, widow of an Anabaptist. And um, unfortunately, uh, they are only uh, married for nine years before her death. Um, and... Uh, 
we'll tell, talk a little bit more about that for in, in, in a moment. But he marries Idolette in 1540. And the number of pleas to return to Geneva start increasing. Um, the, the church in Geneva is in dire straits. They realize they had done wrong in, uh, in driving Calvin out. They start to realize what a treasure they actually had in him uh, because they can't find anybody else to do anything like this at all. And, uh, and certainly his letter in defense of them uh, you know, they read it and they're like, you know, we got nobody that can even come close to this. And, and so there's, there's a great amount of pressure placed upon him. He does not want to go. Geneva may be a pretty place, but it's Switzerland. He's French. Um, at least he's in a French congregation there in Strasbourg. Um, he just... He knows what he's going to be up against. He knows there are people who want him to come back. At the same time, he knows there's lots of people there that don't want him to come back either. And so he is torn. But finally, um, as I said, on September 13th, 1541, Calvin returns to Geneva. And I think one of the coolest, to be honest with you, one of the coolest stories in church history uh, happens right here. Um, Calvin had established, and he continued this in Strasbourg. Some people think that John MacArthur started this, but, but he didn't. Um, Calvin preached verse by verse. He was an expositional preacher. He would work through texts. It's not that he wouldn't do um, topical stuff. Uh, but there is a discipline in preaching straight through a book of the Bible. When you do topical stuff, you can always sort of skip the stuff that you're not so sure about anyways, uh, or that might make people in the church unhappy. Um, you know, uh, what I'll be doing in the service today from Acts 6. Establishment of the diaconate. Uh, you know, it's important, but skipped over by a lot of folks. There's more interesting stuff around to get to, so... Um, but he would preach verse by verse, which is why the commentaries exist. Is because most of that was from his sermon preparation as well. And so he had been preaching verse by verse in Geneva before he was uh, forcibly removed. Uh, and he had established the same um, pattern and discipline in Strasbourg as well. So he returns, and the first... Time in the pulpit, Saint-Pierre, there in Geneva. Um, people are sort of wondering, well, are we going to get it today? Is he going to let us have it for how we rode him out of town on a rail and, and uh, you know, really let us have it before he gets back to, you know, because that's what they're expecting. Instead, uh, he uh, gets into the pulpit, and he says, turn to the next verse right after where he had finished when he left. He knew exactly what the last verse he had covered there in Geneva was, and he says, we're picking right up where we left off two years ago, and never said a word about 
haven't gotten kicked out and didn't rake everybody over the coals and just continued on like, not, like it had been a vacation and just went right on. I would not have remembered where in the world I was, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, there have been many times, especially uh, this past couple of years when I've got all these two, three-week overseas teaching trips I've been doing, multiple nations, that uh, I come back and it's like, the only way I know where I was is I go to Sermon Audio. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> Sermon Audio, uh, let's, let's see the last one there. Oh, there's the rest of the scripture. So you, you could totally mess me up if you got the wrong scripture references in there. I'd be, I'd be completely lost. Um, and sometimes I'll fire it up and listen to it toward the end and go, oh, okay, all right, okay, I covered that, okay. So I've got something to help me. Um, I don't know what Calvin had, but he went to the very next verse and just continued to continue on. So uh, that, I think, is something to, uh, to keep in mind as well. Now, as he expected, uh, 1541 to 1555, next 14 years, nothing but constant struggle. Um, after 1555, there is a sort of a, I guess we should say a breakthrough. And for the next nine years, Calvin has relative peace. Uh, he has won the battle, but it takes 14 years of battle. Now, we are a pampered generation. We are a pampered generation. We have not only so many uh, physical comforts. I mean, just the clothing we wear. I, look, I sometimes look at the clothing they wore back then and think of just, just the chafing. <laughs> Let alone, you know, here in Arizona, we, we've got all these clothes and stuff that are super cool and and dry fast, and so they didn't have any of that stuff. Um, so, I mean, that would have been enough to drive me to distraction. But Calvin had a 27-year-long headache. 27-year-long headache. Um, he didn't have any Advil. He didn't have any Tylenol. He didn't have any aspirin. Uh, he might have had some better days than other days. But basically, he had a lot of illnesses. A lot of, a lot of most everybody did. Um, there wasn't any wellness program. You couldn't get MRIs and, and uh, all the rest of this stuff. And as your body aged, um, you know, things happened. And um, he was frequently ill and frequently had to teach through that and preach through that. That's why I say the, the and, and again, look at that volume of work produced. Um, we get a headache and it's like, I can't go to work today. I can't do anything. And, it's just, and so you had a 27-year headache. Um, his opponents in this 14-year period are just merciless. Um, you know, some, some of the stuff was, well, for example, some, there were a number of people who named their dogs after Calvin. Um, and so, you know, he'd be walking down the street and 
you know, Calvin, get out of here. And he's, somebody's kicking a, kicking a dog, uh, something like that. And, uh, um, they would, uh, uh, sneak out, outside of his home at night and, uh, you know, fire off muskets in the middle of the night, knowing he didn't sleep well anyways. Um, there are times that he'd wake up with a musket ball embedded in the, in the, in the wall, uh, next to the bed. Um, uh, there was just there, and then there were some major, major, major conflicts where uh, he literally stood between the, the the Lord's table and his enemies that he had excluded from the table for their breaking of the laws of the church, where they're holding swords to his throat, and he won't move. Um, uh, there's there's a you know, there's constant intrigue and politics, and because he couldn't avoid politics. I mean, uh, now it, it is it is very, very, very often asserted that Calvin ruled Geneva. That's simply not true. And anyone who knows history knows that that was not true. Uh, he was not the Pope. Um, he headed up the body of ministers of the church. But there was a town council. And that council did not simply rubber stamp whatever Calvin wanted to do, and neither did the other ministers. Um, So while he was extremely influential and powerful, he did not run the city. He could not simply do it. He was not a citizen of Geneva. Until, when was that? I think he was, uh, yeah, 1559. 1559. So he wasn't even a citizen. He couldn't even vote until the last five years of his life in Geneva. And so the common, and sadly commonly repeated in secular history sources in universities and colleges and so on and so forth, of Calvin ruling over Geneva and having people burned right, left, and center. Just, it's just not true. There's, there's no historical evidence of any of that. We will look at the most, um, the most well-known incident of an execution in Geneva here in a few minutes. Well, yeah, we should get to it today. We'll see. Anyway, so it is a constant struggle. Many, many battles within as well as without. Um, there were not only Roman Catholics writing against him, but it is during this period of time when the issue of predestination and election comes to the fore as well. Now, people will say, again, wrongly, that uh, somehow because you have something called Calvinism, that Calvin must have originated it. And Calvin would have gone, what are you talking about? Have you read anything I've said? Uh, Calvin did not claim to originate anything. And when Calvin addresses issues such as God's providence, God's sovereignty, doctrine of election, things like that, his writings are not only deeply biblical, he was fully capable in both Greek and Hebrew, as well as Latin, obviously. But um, he was a scholar of the early church. And so he knew Augustine. 
And as we mentioned when we talked about Augustine last year sometime, um, as B.B. Warfield put it, the Reformation was inwardly considered nothing more than the victory of, of Augustine's doctrine of salvation over Augustine's doctrine, or Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. The Roman Catholics could use Augustine in sacraments and church and things like that, the Reformers in the gospel itself. And so Calvin just sees himself as a Pauline Augustinian. And Luther had, just, just read the bondage of the will. Luther had strongly asserted, Luther was an Augustinian, so Luther had strongly asserted uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the existence of the elect, all the rest of that kind of stuff. But the difference between the two is that Luther presented that haphazardly and emotionally, while Calvin is the relentlessly logical, consistent systematizer. And that's what people detested, was there was no, there was no wiggle room. Uh, he just lays it out in a very compelling fashion and doesn't leave a whole lot of, a lot of space for, for writing about. And so people are writing books against him. Uh, his responses, uh, again, are classics of Reformation theology. Uh, they're remaining extremely valuable to this day, though always keep in mind, I think I mentioned this last week, Calvin himself said, I want to know what I believe. You start with the Institutes. So any other book, commentaries, anything else needs to be read in light of the, the basic system I've laid out in, in the Institutes. And a lot of people forget that, end up reading some out here and then trying to read in the Institutes. It's backwards from what Calvin said. I figure you should let the guy who you're talking about define these things. So battles galore for 14 years and personal Issues as well. In 1542, um, Calvin and Idolette have a little boy, um, Jacques, who lives for two weeks and then passes away. And seven years later, uh, Idolette herself dies in 1549. So Luther lost children in infancy. Calvin loses. In up until modern times, it was almost always the experience of a mother to have lost a child. Infant mortality was huge. There were many periods in church, in church history and history itself, where a woman would have to have 10 live births to get one through to maturity. And so... Um, that, that, that tells us that there is a, that there, something has changed in the experience of humanity. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that we have such tremendous medical advances today, but it's had a huge impact upon mankind as, as well. Because we don't think about death, Hence, we don't prepare for death. I would suggest to you that the modern secular mindset um, could only flourish in a day where medical advancement has allowed us to fundamentally insulate ourselves from mortality. 
I don't, I don't think that secularism and the you're just a cosmic accident mindset would be able to have the prevalence that it has today. Back in the day, when you experienced death all around you all the time. Not just plague, but just naturally. And you look at all these men, and they all had gone through what we would consider today to be unusually stark and deep uh, personal losses. They weren't that unusual back then. Uh, they were actually much more, they were much more the common experience of mankind than they are today. So Idolette dies March 29th, 19, oh, 19, 1549. One other thing that uh, Calvin does that, again, the vast majority of presentations of Calvin's life are, are polemical rather than historical. Um, and so much of the things that he did that do not fit the meme, fit the, the, the narrative, are, are skipped over. Calvin uh, dedicated the institutes to the king of France as a plea for mercy toward the Huguenots, his fellow uh, French Christians, who would be uh, murdered by the tens of thousands uh, under the French government uh, for a very, very long time. So he took up the cause of many persecuted groups, such as the Valdensians. Um, he raised money for them. He worked toward getting them admitted into Geneva. Um, so knowing the kind of persecution that they were facing, not all that far away from uh, Geneva itself, under Roman Catholic persecution at that time. Uh, it also, we also should, he, he was tireless in writing letters in defense of these individuals and in defense of these groups and seeking to get others in the Reformation involved and writing, and he, he would write to Roman Catholic prelates and, and plead with them uh, as, as well. So he was very, very <clears throat> involved. And what that meant was more and more people started coming to Geneva seeking his uh, intercession and his, his help in this way as well. And so... Uh, that's normally left out. You normally don't hear that part. All you hear is the imperious, power-hungry, kill them all if they don't dot their I's and cross their T's just like me type perspective, which is uh, very common out there, unfortunately. Now, I hate to do this. Um, hmm. Because uh, there's no way in four and a half minutes to, to do much more than just give you some background here, but I guess that's what I'll need to do. Um, some of you may have seen the meme online where a Calvinist and Arminian, it's, it's, a, it's a comic book type thing, and in the one, the Calvinist quotes, you know, Romans 9, and the, then the Arminian quotes some verse, Matthew 23 or something. First Peter 2, second Peter 2, whatever. And they go back and forth, and finally the Calvinist says, John 6. And the Arminian screams, Servetus! And then the next, next one is, sorry, I got too excited there. Um, 
if you have ever um, attempted to present uh, reform theology to someone online, eventually uh, somebody stuck their nose in and said, yeah, but Calvin killed Serratus, so I can't believe anything he'd ever said. Which does not demonstrate the deepest level of thought when you, when you think about it, because you can find somebody who's done something bad that believes that the sky's blue. I'm still going to believe the sky's blue. You know? um, there's lots of people who believe that the, the earth is round, and, but they're bad people. I think Hitler believed the earth is round. Therefore, the earth's flat? That, that, doesn't, no, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so um, you've, you've heard the name of Servetus. And there are entire books that have been written. Uh, some secular uh, lawyer wrote a book a couple years ago. A fairly well-known atheist sent it to me uh, just to you know, do his thing. Um, over the years, uh, I remember after seminary, uh, when I was teaching church history over at Canyon, um, Something came up somewhere about this. And so I, I went to the library, and, and I, I looked up everything that, that you could find at that time. And this was years ago. This was before the net. But at least back then, it was actually something in print. You can trust it a little bit more. And so I've got a fair amount of information on the issue of Servetus and what took place there. We are in a position, I think, to understand this a little bit better. Because of the fact um, that we have consistently, ever since Nicaea, been tracing the development and growth of the sacral system in church history. And so, so many people who approach this subject today do so without that in the background and without a solid foundation for trying at least to analyze the incident within its own context. And instead, they just transfer it to today. And it was like, I just can't believe he took that kindly little Jehovah's Witness and burned him up. You know, and that's, not, that's not what was going on. That's not what happened. And it's real easy to get people who think that church history has always been like it is today uh, to think like that. It's, it's not tough to do. And if what you want to do is inflame emotion and poison the well, just... Easy to do, easy to do. Um, but we understand sacralism. We've already talked about Fritz Erba, and we've talked about the Anabaptists, the peaceful Anabaptists anyways. Um, and as a result, we're looking at a second-generation reformer. Sacralism is still how things are done, but the foundations for the destruction of sacralism are being laid. And a lot of people would say that, that Calvin was important in doing that, though that was never his intention. I'm never going to sit there and go, you know, I think Calvin was actually more for a free church, and he was just sort of you know, having to bide his time and lay in seats, baloney. Uh, I don't see any evidence of that at all. The problem is, I think unknowingly, against his wishes, he laid the seeds for a free church in his theology, especially in his priest of the believer and his laying these things out the way that he did and things like that. Um, but no, he was a sacralist and Servetus was a dangerous heretic. And Rome had already condemned Servetus. As we're going to see, 
He escaped the night before they were going to burn him. If they had burned him, you never would have heard of him. Well, just well, maybe in some obscure ways. But it's because he ends up rushing to Geneva that you end up the whole story. So at least we have the background upon which to, to hopefully do a good study of that the next time that we are together. All right, we've run out of time. Let's uh, close our time with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given to us. Once again, we ask, as we have asked over this year and a half, uh, that you would help us to learn from the past, uh, be sensitive to your leading in the present. Uh, We ask that you'd be with us now as we go into worship, that all things may be done to your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.